Okay, I'm going to read from Song of Solomon chapter 2, verses 8 to 17. The voice of my beloved, behold, he cometh, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. Behold, he standeth behind our wall, and he looketh forth at the windows, showing himself through the lattice. My beloved spoke, spake and said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, and the time of the singing of the birds is come, and the voice of the turtle is is heard in our land. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs, and the vines with their tender grapes give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. O oh, my dove, that art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret place of the stairs, let me see thy countenance, let me hear thy voice, for sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. Take off, take off the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feedeth among the lilies. Until the day break, and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, and be thou like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of Bather. You can be seated. I've chosen to uh, speak this morning on the subject of Attraction, Dating, and Romance. Sermon title is Attraction, Dating, and Romance. <clears throat> right about in the middle of the Bible, there are five books back to back to back that are called wisdom books. The book of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And these books show us um, repeatedly in poetry form and in song, music, and just talking, sort of like journaling, sort of like calling out, like praying or crying out to God, talking to God in dialogue about life, about God's ways, about living and dying, and pretty much anything in between. In the fifth book, The Song of Solomon, there is a portrait of a man and a woman navigating the age-old pursuit of romance. which is actually the pursuit of each other and designed by God to move us into a pursuit of Him. That's God's design. Dating, courtship, intimacy, connectedness, communication, attraction, relationship. We are hardwired with a desire for this, for these kinds of interaction with other human beings. God has created us with this desire. And in most ways, this desire 
is a reminder of our need of it. The fact that we human beings um, struggle to exist alone. We struggle with being isolated from others. And the desire that God placed in our minds and hearts is a reminder of our need of, of that kind of interaction. <clears throat> Furthermore, I think that God wants to highlight a message through Christian individuals and through Christian couples and Christian families and Christian churches about purity and morality. And interestingly, the world, the unbelieving world, even in 2019, is not unclear of what Christians should stand for. Have you ever noticed that? People who claim to have no connection to God, to be isolated from Christianity and religion, they have a template of what they believe or understand Christians should stand for. And that's especially talked about and noted when, unfortunately, Christians are hypoc hypocritical in this area. And it's not only enough to speak about practical helps on this subject, although I'm going to do some of that here today. I'm aware that a topical sermon like this, it is possible and maybe even probable that, um, well, when, when a speaker chooses a topical sermon or a topical um, subject, it is particularly easy to choose the subject and then find Bible verses that fit what is wanted to talk about. And I'm not uh, insisting that I'm doing none of that here today. So it's not only enough to speak of practical helps. And I'm not condemning things like purity pledges and wristbands and such that remind us of our need for purity. But I'm saying that that is not enough. I'm aware that that is not enough. There is no such thing as a replacement for a pure heart before God. And if your heart is not pure, then any amount of things that you do or reminders that you place into your mind and, and put right in front of you will ultimately be enough to produce inward transformation on this subject. The good news about topics such as this is that it's talked about in the Bible, actually rather freely and, and frequently. It begins, I think, in the book of Genesis. In my mind, as I see it, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, says that in the beginning God created. And that simple and profound statement, I, gives, I think, gives us an authoritative foundation. It's a... It's, it's a lens by which we can see life and interpret what happens to us and around us. And that's true for, for things like romance and dating and attraction. God created. The problem is that two chapters in from that verse is when sin entered the world. And we don't have a problem understanding that Satan and sin 
distorts pretty much everything that God intended to be good. Things that God created and gave as a gift to humanity become distorted by Satan and sin. And things that are good and valuable and important become uh, distorted by, by that. I think it's also important for us to remember and understand, and I'm, I'm going to repeat this point numerous times throughout this sermon. I've already am doing that. That it's important for us to understand that God created us this way. It's important for us to understand that these feelings and emotions that we feel, that push in on us, that are strong, strong feelings and emotions in, for humans, are created by God. God created human relationships. And I think the manner in which we were created is instructive. For instance, the Bible tells us that Adam was formed from the dust of the ground. Eve, on the other hand, was created from Adam. And men, if you have any feelings of sentiment about the things that, you cre- that, that come from you, that are yours, that, are, that come from yourself, you should be able to understand the feeling of protection and dignity and honor that we place on things that we, that we're responsible for, that come from us. And I think it's instructive of how men should think about women. The amount of dignity and honor and protection that, sh- that we should be extending toward um, the gender of uh, women. Women was formed from man. Something was taken from man and returned to him. To me, that clearly protect, uh, projects an image, a visual of protection and honor and value. And I also want to repeat that this action was done before sin. Before it was distorted by sin, God This act of creation was done by God without the presence of sin and Satan. Satan didn't sneak in and add his touch at this point. God did it. Also, just to remind us that both man and woman show and reveal God's characteristics. I think it's one of the reasons why God tells Adam that Eve is a help that's meet or suitable for him. God knew that men need a lot of help. And to project the image of God in a more complete way, we do that by honoring and extending respect and value to to the, each other, and especially men to women. In Genesis chapter 2, then, after the creative acts of, of the act of creating Adam and Eve, we have some of the most foundational marriage principles that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. Genesis chapter 2, verses 23, 24, and 25. And in verse 25, especially, I see the principle of security that's necessary in any marriage in any kind of romantic 
committed romantic relationship, and that is the, the principle of security, where it talks that the man and the woman were naked and they were not ashamed. And I realize that this is talking maybe somewhat about the physical part, but I think it goes far deeper than that. Before the fall, there was no cover-up. Think about that. They were completely, completely free to be themselves around each other. They were not selfish. There was no pressure to prove anything about any issue or matter at all. They were completely free from that. And when I think about this picture of human relationships, especially when it comes to romance and dating and attraction, I think it is a signal to all of us about our need. Well, it's a message of the gospel. Our need of Jesus Christ and the opportunity that we have to be completely free and transparent before Jesus, our bridegroom. And I'll touch about that maybe toward the end of the sermon. Where we come to a place spiritually where we are completely secure with who we are in Christ and what is our role in our relationship with Christ. And realizing that in Christ we are complete and whole. And that's true for any of us, whatever stage of life we are in, whether we're single or married or wish to be married, whatever that state is. We are completely whole and free and secure in Christ. It's possible for us to have that sort of relationship with him right now. <clears throat> Sadly, immediately following these verses in Genesis is Genesis chapter 3, where Satan entered the picture and changed the way human relationships flow. And that was because of Adam and Eve's disobedience. And so God's good gift of relationships can become a snare, can become a trap for us. All through these centuries and millennia, human relationships, men and women have struggled with this idea of romance and attraction and dating because we pursue them in ways that are outside of God's boundaries and outside of God's laws. And so when sin entered into the world, what was meant by God to be complete and perfect was meant by God to be something that produces worship in our hearts. Instead, it has the potential to harm and wound. It has the potential to violate and draw people into rebellion against God rather than draw people into worship of God. Or conversely, it causes people to become selfish where it's a form of worship of themselves. Instead of putting other needs, others' needs first, we put our own needs first. Instead of looking out for others, we look out for ourselves. Our desires become foremost and what controls us. And that becomes pretty much the source of any or all conflicts that we know. Dating and relationships. As I studied and prepared and preach here, I simply want to just and yeah, give this sermon, I just want to give a little bit of a disclaimer and saying that as I studied and prepared and form these notes uh, before me here, I was aware that, that 
for myself personally and for Gina and I and our little family, um, there's probably areas where we don't practice what I'm preaching as well as we should. And I'm challenged to improve on, on that, to work on that. Just for my own personal experience, Gina and I met when we were both 18. And we dated for just, just about three years. And the day we were married on October of 1993, I was 21 and she was 20. We basically went straight from adolescence to marriage. I have very few memories of adult singlehood without Gina in my life. I don't really regret that at all. I feel badly about that. And I'm not lifting up the way that we did it as the only way to go. And I'm sure that everybody's story is different, and that's uh, one of the blessings of uh, interacting in that way. But dating for us was long distance. As you know, Gina was from South Carolina, is from South Carolina, was from South Carolina. And we have strong ties, family connections, and uh, cousins, and relatives, and um, yeah, good family ties, me being from Pennsylvania. And in the early 90s, of course, there was no such thing as cell phones, imagine that. No internet, no email. It was something that we were, we didn't, I mean, if we heard about it, it was kind of like, um, yeah, science fiction or something like that. So our dating consisted of letter writing and phone calls. We talked on phones that were connected to devices attached on the wall. And both Gina and I served in VS. We served a relatively long term of voluntary service while we were dating. I might just touch on that a little later on. It, I have some feelings about that. And during the time we were dating and engaged, there was at least twice where we didn't see each other for three months at a time. I'm not saying it was easy. I'm just saying that's our story. I have great memories of dating. Not perfect, of course, but relatively few regrets. And I wish that for others as well. And I, I find that one of the primary reasons that I chose this topic is just, just my desire and my heart for, for youth and people who are dating or are thinking about dating and that sort of thing. And my goal for this sermon is to just leave some of my personal thoughts and, and uh, teachings on that matter. <clears throat> I have great respect for my father-in-law and how he handled things in relation to my asking to date Gina and uh, my asking to marry her, and how he mentored me through all those years and uh, yeah, those specific years and in the years since. I credit many of the thoughts that I've organized here today to a book that I've been reading and perusing, a book called The Mingling of Souls by Matt Chandler. I would recommend that book as uh, good reading material for um, anyone who's, um, who thinks about dating sometimes or wonders about dating or um, people who are married, uh, yeah, good stuff. The Mingling of Souls by Matt Chandler. It's an ex exposition of the Bible book of Song of Solomon. 
Also, if you're inclined, I think reading the book of Song of Solomon in another translation, and even the King James Version is a good way of, uh, of reading the book and seeing the outline, um, especially um, paragraph headings in, in the NIV, for example, or other uh, translations where you have the separation of the conversation, who's talking specifically, and that sort of thing. Also, I want to give a hat tip to a young man from our church who suggested a while ago that I preach on the subject of dating. And a hat tip to another young man in this church who suggested a while ago that I preach on the book of Song of Solomon. So I'm um, honoring a few of those requests this morning as I preach. Attraction, dating, and romance. We'll follow those as the outline for the sermon today, those three um, related but um, separate uh, sections for the sermon. Attraction. Attraction is a strange and ambiguous thing. It is relatively hard to define and varies, actually varies a lot from one individual to another. Personalities that we find ourselves attracted to or reasons why we're attracted to other people. Now, I can sort of speak from a man's perspective, so I guess I'm going to do that today. When boys are little, they usually treat little girls pretty much just like they treat other little boys. Um, they tend not to think about um, gender differences at all. And at some point, as they get a little bit older, boys start to think that girls are really weird. And they um, maybe prank them, or they tease them, or they pick on them. They could care less if boys think they're repulsive or gross. But somewhere, sometime, about between fifth grade and ninth grade, that changes completely. And boys start to take showers, and they start to style their hair, and clothes matter a lot. And most of the things that didn't matter previously now matter a lot. And one of the reasons for that is because they are concerned about what girls think of them and how they're received and appreciated and respected by girls. Boys start to pursue girls, and girls start to want to be pursued. And certainly there are exceptions to what I described, but generally, generally that's the case. And most of what I've described to you comes down to attraction. And I believe that attraction is closely linked to beauty. The Bible is actually well spoken about beauty. There's numerous people, especially in the Old Testament, that are described as handsome or good-looking or beautiful, both men and women. It describes people as being beautiful when they were. And again, that's an ambiguous term, and it varies greatly from one individual to another. And you know, we feel ourselves drawn to certain people, or even to just certain personality types. And again, that varies from individual to another. And that's completely normal. God created us that way. 
But here's my warning. It is possible to be primarily or only attracted to physical beauty. How tall a person is. Or we may notice their eye color or their hair type or their skin tone. We may notice their clothes and we appreciate and like their taste or um, how they're dressed or how they wear their clothes. Or, again, different people find different things attractive and beautiful. And the same word of God that sanctions and lifts up beauty is the same word of God that gives a lot of caution about being only or primarily attracted by outward beauty. It is true, especially in the book of Proverbs, there's strong warning that is given to weaken or reminders are given in numerous books of the Bible. And I'm thinking of Proverbs especially, again, a book of wisdom that talks about life and things about life. We can easily be baited by our attractions. And we can end up taking a wrong and a dangerous path as a result of our choices. And, uh, yeah, because of our, our uh, quest or our attraction to, to beauty. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for looking good outwardly, but being very unattractive inwardly. Samson discovered this principle during his flings in the book of Judges. Satan himself is described as being an angel of light, being pretty outwardly. Focusing only or primarily on physical appearance can and does lead to some very bad endings. I'm not saying that to say that we should get married to somebody that we find physically unattractive. That's not what I'm saying at all. It only means that our romance or our sense of beauty, our attraction needs to run deeper than mere physical or outward attraction. The mingling of souls, as Matt Chandler correctly says, it's much more than a mingling of body parts. We should never We should never allow ourselves to be limited or our attraction to to be limited to physical or outward beauty. It should never drive us into relationships that are toxic or ungodly. Our drive for physical beauty needs to be guarded. And I remind you that the real you is the inner you. Who you are inwardly is, is expressed by your outward appearance. What's inside a person comes out. So there's some questions to ask when you find yourself attracted to a person or an individual, whether it's a prospective boyfriend or girlfriend or some other person. You ask yourself questions such as, uh, how do they relate to authority in their life? Are they submissive people by nature? Are they able to disagree and remain respectful while disagreeing? Are they able to resolve conflict? Are they willing to receive counsel and advice? Are they able to hold a job? Are they plugged in at the church they attend? Are they able to lead others spiritually? How do they handle suffering? All of these questions are things that you should be thinking about as you find yourself attracted or drawn to other people. 
especially if it's a guy or a girl that uh, you're thinking about some sort of prospective relationship or yeah, developing relationship. Physical attraction should be part of it. Just look at Song of Solomon, chapter 1, which I think is, the Song of Solomon is, in my opinion, basically a diary, a journal of one man and one woman's pursuit of each other. And we, saw, we find physical attraction being a big thing throughout the entire book. These, this man and woman are wildly attracted to each other physically. But it goes much deeper than that. And we can see that at various points in the, in the book. The mention of physical traits in the book, in the book of Song of Solomon. The, the strong desire to be in the presence of each other. We can see that especially in chapter 1. Tell me where you're, tell me where you're going to be feeding your sheep. Tell me where you're going to be because the implication is I want to be there too. The desire to be in the presence of each other in more modern language would be the desire to hang out. The desire to be in the presence of the person that you're pursuing or being pursued by. I want to know where you are so I can be there too. And I point out in chapter 1, in verses 4 and 8, that these lovers are in the presence of other people. I find that very instructive. And I think it's something that we need to learn from. You know, the tendency is, in, for, for guys and girls when they start dating, the tendency is to want to seclude themselves and isolate themselves. And I'm going to submit that to you as a danger. I don't see that as a particularly positive thing at all. Activities that are only between the two of you. It's a myth, and it's many times not healthy. And it's one of the bigger mistakes that I think accompanies dating, at least by some people. So now I've talked about attraction. I want to move now to dating. Now, I'm fully aware that this world, this word has fallen on hard times, especially in the world. And that's because of the shift that the world has taken. And as I studied to preach and I occasionally Googled subjects to just find subject matter on what I was thinking about or, or, yeah, or yeah, gathering subject material, I was disgusted by the amount of, of suggested sites that came up on pretty much any search that I did. Online dating and, and the projection of... Um, of dating as just being something that people do to get hooked up and, uh, yeah, find some kind of physically compatible person to, to you where people set up profiles and project themselves to be some sort of persona that they may not even actually be. And that's, that's almost, it seems that is almost only, the only thing that the world thinks of when they think of this subject. I am personally okay with the word dating. But I understand if people prefer older words such as courtship or some other word that imply a greater level of commitment than what, I just, than what the world seems to think about. Dating is not about figuring out physically or physical or sexual com compatibility. There's much more than that. There is basically nothing good that ever comes out of that sort of approach. Listen to me, especially youth. If a dating relationship turns into this, you are setting yourself up for a lot of heartache. 
and a lot of wounding. I just want to clarify, as you date and the romantic attraction grows, desire comes with it. That is not abnormal. That is just as normal as could be. That's as usual as can be. I think you could probably talk to most married couples here today and they, could, they would totally agree with me. As you get to interact with a person, the desire for greater physical intimacy grows along with your knowledge of the other person. It's just normal. There's nothing wrong with that desire. The Bible is just as clear as... Let me say it on the other way. The Bible, on the other hand, is just as clear. The Bible is just as clear that while this is normal, that sexual arousal and sexual activity to somebody that you're not married to is disobedience against God. It's sin. And so this desire needs to be carefully guarded and carefully protected. And guys, it is your responsibility. It is your responsibility to provide a safe place for the girl, the women in your life. It is your job to provide a safe place and a protected place. And girls, listen, if you're ever in a situation where you are not being protected in that way, it is reason to get out of that situation. If the guy in your life that's pursuing you refuses to openly, publicly acknowledge his connection or his desire, his relationship, yeah, just, just be suspicious. If he insists on pursuing you in secret, you are being played. You're caught in a game in which your heart is going to lose. In chapter 2, verse 4, I see references to public acknowledgement of the relationship here in Song of Solomon. And also in chapter 1, there are numerous uh, indications of this, where what is being done, the pursuit of this guy and girl here in Song of Solomon is done in the open. There's nothing secretive about it. It's not some, some, um, yeah, some back corner deal where you're sitting in the back corner of a, steam, in a, of a parking lot in a steamed up automobile. Dating should only be done. Look at verse, just back up again. In chapter 2, verse 4, notice how it talks about the banner over me. This is the girl talking here. His banner over me is love. The banner. Let the whole world see it. Nothing secretive about it. It's a sign. Uh, a, something, a visual that, yeah, you're, you're not doing it secretly. And in verse 9, you see that same idea. He standeth behind our wall. He looketh forth in the window. He's showing himself through the lattice. He's not sneaking around some dark corner. He's visible in plain sight. And I think it's a guide for dating relationships. Um, yeah, an instruction for, for, um, for us. I also believe that dating should only be done with the, by the approval of godly people around you. I think it is completely reasonable for the girl's father to check out a prospective boyfriend. And let me just tell you something here. My father-in-law did that. He didn't tell me at the time, but he told me later. He called lots of people from Weavertown because here was this Weavertown guy that he had never met called 
and wondered about asking, or yeah, I called my father-in-law on a random number and yeah, called him. It was a scary thing to do at that time, and I asked him if it was all right if I uh, come down and see Gina and if we um, maybe sort of develop into, yeah, we'll see where it goes here. And, and yeah, I'd like to date your daughter. And he treated me very uh, respectfully and very, very honorably, very charitably. But he took responsibility at that point and called numerous people from Weavertown, people that he sort of knew or knew of, to check out this guy from PA. And I respect that. I admire that. <clears throat> One of the primary purposes of dating is to assess whether or not the relationship can or will lead to marriage. I think it's one of the primary, basic, foundational reasons of dating. If there, if there is some other ulterior motive, that's what it is. It's an ulterior motive, and it leads to bad ends. I do not personally encourage casual dating, but neither do I believe that we should see one date, or even a couple of dates, as a commitment to marriage. And I think, possibly, again, just my thought, I think Possibly the purity culture, as it's been called, sometimes sarcastically. The purity culture of the 90s and early 2000s has sort of created um, an attachment of shame when marry or dating is, doesn't work out for some reason or another. And I, I, I'd like to just um, say that uh, I think we need to be careful about that. I think the purpose of dating is to see whether a relationship can whether that relationship can or will lead to marriage. Dating should be fun. Dating should be a blast. I think we should plan and do activities that are fun, that bring out uh, joy in the other persons, in, in each other, and, and in our own lives. We should plan and do activities that are serious. And we should plan and do activities that are hilarious. And we should observe how easy it is for your partner to switch from one to the other. How, how, how adaptable, how easy is it for the person that you're pursuing to switch from serious to funny? I don't think it should be just one or the other. You need both in life. Can the person be serious? Can the person joke and be funny? Observe how easy it is for your boyfriend or girlfriend to be either one of these. I have already wondered if our particular culture should have a step in the process that some of our Mennonite friends have where couples date and then they start to go steady. I don't know for sure about that. Think about that. Talk about that if you want. But going steady in some of our uh, cultures that are not that unlike ours, that have this little interim, it's not engagement, but it's a higher level of commitment than just dating or taking a girl out. Engagement comes a little later. It's just an honest recognition that this relationship seems to be um, legit. 
and it seems to be going somewhere, and the territory that you're entering into suddenly becomes, you become more convinced that this is the one, or this is, this is she, this is he. And I believe I might be willing to spend the rest of my life with this person. And perhaps there doesn't have to be that layer. Perhaps there's just a recognition that happens kind of organically, where we no longer just hang out because we sort of like that. But we, get, we begin to sort things out. We don't hang out, we sort out. And, there, and during this time, and during this part of the conversation, there needs to be conversations that have to do with real life, such as discussions about the past, where you start to take off layers that you wouldn't normally share to just anyone. You talk about things of your past, things of the present, hopes and dreams for the future, discussions about hurts and wounds. We all have them. And you start to take away some of the curtain, the facade, that you tend to have toward just anyone else, and you allow the other person to see deeper into your heart of hearts. The excitement in this stage that comes as a result of this is not merely about attraction. It's not merely about hanging out, but it, it moves toward understanding and acceptance of the other person. It moves into a place of, of forgiveness. It moves into a, a, a recognition of how the other person communicates, what motivates them, what causes them to function the way they do. There's something that I want you to know about my background. There are certain things that bother me, and here's why. Here are some of my concerns. I feel afraid when I fill in the blank. And here's an area where I'm growing. Here's an area where I'm struggling. And you become more and more and increasingly transparent. You take back the curtain. This kind of interaction comes with a great deal of risk. But remember that we first of all have established an environment of safety and security and trust. And if that's missing, you'll never get very successfully to this place that I'm talking about. In chapters 2 and 3 in the book of Song of Solomon, I see these lovers progressing to that stage. They're looking at each other and they're saying, wow, you're doing this like, and they use all kinds of metaphors. I see you coming and I, f I see you doing, I see you being. And in chapter 3 especially, the King James Version doesn't use very many question marks. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but I see two of them in chapter 3 alone questions that are asked. I see you doing this. What about? It, in chapter 3, verse 1, the lover is awake at night thinking about these questions. It becomes a part of our life where it dominates our thoughts and we start to think about the other person. We say, why is the person doing this? And, and there's things that have been shared and we start to puzzle through it. We start to put it together and we start to reach out. That's what I see in, in chapters 2 and 3. Their thoughts and their discussions have to do with longer-term evaluations. 
just read that. Look at that yourself. Long-term evaluations. Comparison, evaluation of vision. And these thoughts that keep them awake at night. The, com the compatibility coming together. Ponderations about your significant other that produce questions. That's a healthy, normal, emotional connection. Now quickly, I want to also talk about romance. <clears throat> and I don't have as much to say about this in a public setting like this, in a mixed setting like this. But the book of Song of Solomon is actually very precious, especially chapter 4. The end of chapter 3, we see words about wedding and espousal and that kind of thing. I think in chapter 4 is the wedding night. A description of the wedding night. And I will just say this. God's gift is an amazing gift. It is a precious gift. It is a valuable gift. And it needs to be protected. It needs to be preserved for the wedding night. It is not something that we share with others. It is not something that we put out there. We save it. We protect it. We honor it as something so worthy that it is never shared with someone other than the person that we're married to. We see tenderness and passion. There's nothing dirty about what's written in chapter 4. Chapter 5 and 6 then go on to talk about conflict. And listen to me, if you've been married 20 minutes or 20 days, you understand that conflict is very much a part of our relationship and resolving of conflict. I personally remember on our honeymoon, and listen, I, I thought when we got married on October 22nd, 1993, I thought Gene and I were pretty much the same. I thought we had basically everything in common. And on our honeymoon, we were just a couple of days into this. We had our first uh, fight or disagreement, or whatever you want to call it. And I remember being jolted by that. You don't have to be married very long to discover that Prince Charming can and sometimes does fall off his horse. And the glass slipper does not always fit Cinderella's foot. I'll just sum it up this way. Resolving conflict and disagreement in a marriage can be one of the most gut-wrenching and painful experiences that a person can ever go through. But the rewards of doing so are so large, so big. And the consequences for not doing so, conversely, are so big and far-reaching. And commitment in times like this are a reminder to me of Jesus' love. Like I said, this human relationship is and should be a picture of the gospel. Jesus never quits on me when I disappoint him. Jesus never gives me the silent treatment. Jesus continues to pursue me even when I feel disappointment or when my expectations are unmet. And I just want to leave this. In times like this, words are powerful. And especially when it comes from a spouse, a person that you love. 
And the way we say them, tone, volume, the posture in which we say them, adds to that. And I see basically no room ever to resort to yelling. Or to resort to demeaning. Or sarcasm. Or any such attempt to get one's point across. There's, there's always a better way. Chapter 7 and 8 gives me some, some enthusiasm, because, enthusiasm because I see these lovers getting it back together. And one of the best things about disagreements or conflict in a marriage is, is resolving them, getting it back together. And when I see these lovers here in the book of Song of Solomon getting it back together, it gives me hope for you. And it gives me hope for me. It means that you and I can do the same. I want to just talk now shift and give you some practical things. And I'm going to go pretty fast and probably not share all of what I have here in my notes. One of the things that comes up frequently when it comes to dating is boundaries. Dating standards, whatever you want to call them. Maybe there's a different word that you use to describe physical limits that are placed in your dating or engagement relationship. How much is okay? How far is too far. I personally am not here to tell you exactly where the specific boundaries are or where they should be. However, as a pastor, I've had the opportunity to sit to listen to people's stories. And one of the stories that has struck me repeatedly is the extraordinarily regret. The huge regret and the barriers that come into a relationship as a result of not having healthy physical boundaries during a dating and engaged relationship. Listen, I'm just going to be frank. I cannot remember ever hearing somebody say on their wedding night, I wish we would have kissed more. Or I wish we would have done whatever you, you fill in the blanks. I, I have never heard anything like that. When a person is married two months or two years, I have never heard anybody say that they wish they would have been more physical during the time they were dating or engaged. I've never heard that. I don't know if, if that ever is said. But I've heard pain-filled stories of people who carry painful memories because of violations that occurred during their dating and engagement time. And on the subject of boundaries, I'm not quite sure where and exactly what those boundaries, what the specific line is. Perhaps it's not the same for every couple. But I'm pretty much positively sure on at least a couple of things. Number one, I think it is more important that you keep the boundaries that you place I think it's more important that you keep what you have decided than it is exactly what the boundaries are. And secondly, I'm almost completely positively convinced that we give ourselves much more leniency during the time of our dating and engagement than we would or than we, than we realize. We, we underestimate the power of these kinds of things. 
we realize it more after we're married. We tend to be overly confident of our own self-control. <clears throat> I want to just share a few myths about dating. Myth number one, and this one is to parents, all right, parents. Myth number one, the right guy or girl will straighten him out or her out. And we try to push our children into dating, thinking that they need something or someone to straighten them out. I think it is a dangerous misconception. It sets up your child for a lot of heartache. Change has to come from within a person. And change that comes from within a person ultimately only comes from Jesus Christ at work in their life. And if you're looking to a person to bring that change, you're looking to the wrong place. Myth number two. It doesn't matter if most of my friends or family don't like the person that I'm crazy about. I understand him or her, and it's my opinion that matters most. Well, there might be some truth to that maybe bits of truth to that. Just remember that a healthy marriage is not only about the two of you living together happily ever after. There's a certain degree where you become married to the family of your spouse and you embrace family traits and habits and traditions that going into it you might be highly unfamiliar with. And there's such things as family reunions and holidays where you spend time with that other family. Besides that, there are neighbors and friends and others to serve. And your marriage should and can become a platform for that. I'm running out of time. In closing, I just want to say, remind you again, that attraction... Dating and romance is and can be, should be, about the gospel. The Bible tells us that when we were at our worst, Christ sacrificed the most. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And what made me love Christ wasn't that all of a sudden I figured out how to do life. What, what, what drew me to Christ was not some light bulb moment where I figured out what was expected of me by him. Instead, when I was at my weakest, when I was at my worst, Christ said, I'll take that one. I pick you. That's the one I want. The Bible calls the church Christ's bride. And someday, the Bible tells us, we'll stand before Jesus Christ. And in that moment, we are going to be completely exposed. All of our flaws, all of our insecurities, I don't know how theologically this is, but all of our sins, everything about us is going to be exposed. And the Bible indicates, I think, through the picture of marriage, that we can be in such a relationship with Jesus Christ that we can do so completely unembarrassed, unashamed. We can feel unworthy. We can feel 
uh, amazed. But there's a, we can have such a relationship with Jesus Christ that we feel completely secure in that time. And that goes against all rationale and all reason. The groom, Jesus Christ, looks at us and declares us righteous, declares us beautiful. And that's the gospel. That's the message of the gospel. It's possible for us to have that relationship with Jesus Christ. And I close with that thought. It's not about what we can do. It's not about what we are. It's about who he is. My prayer is that you would be encouraged or that you would be um, yeah, encouraged, strengthened. And if there were things said that were not um, the way they should have been, my prayer is that those things would, be, uh, would not be a hindrance to your relationship or your uh, relationship to people and your future. Let's kneel together for prayer. <clears throat> Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ, for the gift of your Son. We thank you that you reach out to us and you uh, love us, that you care for us. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given um, opportunity for us to uh, reach out to you. And I pray that that would be the case for everybody here today under the sound of my voice, wherever we find ourselves in life, that we would turn to you Turn to the person that's beside us and close to us, the person that we're married to, the, post, the person that, that we're connected to, and pursue you, pursue each other in a way that honors you. And wherever we find ourselves, help us, Lord, to have that spiritual connection with each other. I pray that you would strengthen the marriages in our midst and give the youth and others strength and wisdom as they sort through some of these important questions in their lives. We pray it through Christ. Amen.